Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump says we have to run the risk, and the markets appear willing to do just that. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back. The Senate is back in session, and as much as Congress has done already to help the economy, there's more work left to be done, including assistance to state and local governments to help the most vulnerable to the pandemic. Unfortunately, they often include the poor and people of color. But if there is to be another major move to shore up the economy, Speaker Nancy Pelosi wants to make sure it starts in the House of Representatives. And we asked her why. Well, let me just say that I'm very proud that our first four bills uh, on this subject have been all bipartisan, overwhelmingly bipartisan. Uh, As we take up this fifth bill, we're following the path of what was in the other bills. For example, we had state and local in the first CARES bill, CARES one, and that is what we have in this bill. Honor our heroes. Police and fire, healthcare providers, transit workers, teachers, all of the people who, postal workers, all of the people who uh, make our system work, and in many cases risk their lives to save other people's lives, and now they may lose their job because of the uh, uh, revenue loss as well as coronavirus costs that states and municipalities are, are um, uh, suffering. So A. B. That we, if we were to open up, the key to opening up, to unlocking the lockdown is testing, 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 tracing, 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 treatment, treatment, treatment. We have to do that. It's science requires it. Everyone agrees uh, that we have to, it's a health issue that is going to solve the fiscal, uh, the financial 
uh, issue as well. And then third, we want to put money in people's pockets. On our heroes, state and local, testing, testing, testing. Uh, let's make sure that we address the disparities and all the rest by identifying really where this uh, uh, cruel virus is uh, creeping out there. It's, it's, it's so scary. And then third, putting money in people's pockets. What do we do? Unemployment insurance, whether we do uh, issues that relate to direct payments and the rest of that, that's what we have to do. Now, we had all three of those in the previous bills. So this is not plowing any new territory. It's digging deeper. It's more money. For example, state and local, it has the support of Republican and Democratic governors throughout the country. Also, state uh, the municipalities and counties, bipartisan support throughout the country. Uh, it's a big ticket because we are, it's a big challenge. It's only for coronavirus that is outlays and revenue loss. Now, there's some issues that we just don't, that are philosophical that we haven't been able to crack, and that is food stamps, SNAP, the SNAP program. For some reason, that's not something that we can get the other side to agree on, but we have to do it, and the American people know uh, that we have to do that. Uh, Brookings Institute just put out a report that moms say that one in four children do not have any, uh, uh, they are food insecure, one in four children in our country. It, that, it's always been a problem, more like one in five, one in six. Now it's exacerbated by all of this. So again, there's some issues that uh, are traditional debates that we have, but there shouldn't be any question that we would have. Now, food stamps, unemployment insurance, direct payments, so many of these things serve as a stimulus uh, to the economy as well. So uh, the, the chairman of the Fed said, think big, interest rates are so low, think big, and we're taking his guidance on that. Madam Speaker, you said that for some reason you can't get the Republican side to move on food stamps. Can they get you to move on some of the things that they want, such as payroll tax? That's something President Trump keeps talking about, even capital gains tax. Are you willing to put on the table at least some uh, adjustments in taxation? Well, let me just say this. If you want to compare the need for us to change the capital gains tax, which once again, once again, uh, uh, ignores the fact that there are people in our country that are hungry and that there is some equivalence to that, I respectfully disagree. There are certain things that are urgent. Uh, they're urgent. To uh, have a discussion of tax policy, save that for another day and do it in a bipartisan way. But don't draw any lines in the sand. We're not. He shouldn't. Do you have a sense at this point? I understand the plan has been put together. You have a sense of how big this might be. How big is this bread box, do we think? Yeah, big. It'll be big. Well, see, for example, when we went from uh, state and local, that was how we uh, embraced it before. Now it's state and local, separate. And so it practically doubled what we would be doing. And, and that's a big ticket item. Uh, we're doing the, the uh, testing in a way that has a strategic plan. That's what we asked them to do in the last bill. We had testing, testing, testing in our March 4th bill that passed the House that day. We had testing in the most recent bill. We still do not have what the scientists tell us is necessary to reach out into the communities with a band of people to do the tracing so that we can rid ourselves of this plague. And that costs money. 
and then the direct payments, that's, that's a big ticket item and that's uh, what we are working on now. Uh, where do we get the most return uh, for the best uh, help to our uh, people who are desperate? People are desperate. They're heartbroken because of loss of life, threat to life, uh, but so many of their aspirations professionally, businesses, uh, community involvement and the rest are so uh, stifled by what's happening and we really have to address that. And if we don't, it's going to cost us a lot more money. Uh, so this is a prevention in many ways. That was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Coming up on Wall Street Week, this economic crisis has shown us some of the glaring inequalities in financial services in this country. We talk with MasterCard Vice Chairman Michael Froman about what can be done about those. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. When Congress approved $1,200 checks to most Americans, some people got their payments much faster than others did, and it depended on whether they had direct deposit relations with the IRS. It pointed once again to the plight of millions of Americans who are unbanked or underbanked. We talked with MasterCard Vice Chairman Michael Froman about the nature of the problem and what can be done about it. About five years ago, MasterCard committed to bringing half a billion people who had been excluded from the financial system into the system. We achieved that goal uh, last quarter, about nine months ahead of schedule, and we decided that now more than ever, it's important to make sure people have access to the digital economy. So we doubled down. We've raised that goal now to a billion between now and 2025. We've also said it's really important to bring 50 million micro and small businesses into the economy. And because there continues to be a gender gap when it comes to financial inclusion, women tend to lag about 9% behind men in terms of being included. We're going we're gonna to focus in particularly on reaching 25 million women-owned or women-run businesses around the world. So, so, Michael, give us a sense of the geography first. I mean, how many of these are the United States? How many of them are, are overseas? Because MasterCard, of course, is a global company. Well, you know, there are about a 1.7 billion people around the world who are still excluded from the financial system. Uh, most of them are in developing countries, but there are people right here in the United States and in Europe who are also excluded, people who are unbanked or underbanked. There are estimates that in the U.S. are somewhere between 30 and 40 million people who have no formal relationship to the financial system. So a lot of what we're focused on, and it will vary from country to country as it has over the last five years, is figuring out how best to reach them. Sometimes it'll be through government disbursement programs. And for example, uh, millions of people will get their uh, economic uh, payments from the government on one of our, our cards. Um, sometimes it'll be working with, with fintechs uh, who have a uh, capability of bringing people into the financial system uh, that didn't exist uh, five or ten years ago. Um, or it'll be partnering with other companies. Uh, we have a partnership with a group called Neumann's, which is a big coffee trading group, to help put their workers, for example, in Mexico on digital payments. And it means that the, the worker, the, the grower of the, of the coffee, is getting 20% more for her product than she might have gotten before because we've eliminated the need to go through middlemen and go through cash. Uh, Michael, you mentioned uh, small businesses as, as part of this. Uh, give us a sense of what you're seeing with MasterCard, by the extent to which small businesses are drawing down on their credit as a practical matter, putting it on their credit card, or for that matter, just not buying things at all, maybe with reduced activity. Well, we're certainly seeing a, 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 an impact here. People are 
focusing on essential purchases like groceries and 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 pharmacy purchases. Uh, there's a big movement from brick and mortar to uh, e-commerce. Uh, but, but even where people where there is brick and mortar, where people are going face to face, we're seeing a big rise in what we call contactless payments, about a 40 percent growth around the world and people going and just tapping their card because they don't want to hand over their card to somebody. They, they don't want to handle cash. They don't want to have to put in a PIN number. And so being able to just tap and go is a safe and secure way of, of making payments. Uh, small businesses, as you said, are particularly hit by this uh, crisis. We've committed $250 million of products and services and financial support over the next five years to small and medium-sized businesses to help them digitize, bring them into the e-commerce environment, make sure that their transactions are safe and secure from cyber attack and and from fraud. And that's going to be an area of of continued focus uh, in the United States and around the world. Uh, Michael, one of the questions we're asking uh, almost all of us right now is, to what extent is this pandemic changing what we're going to be as opposed to just making us get there faster? Talk about the contactless payment. Is that someplace we were going to get anyway? And to what extent has that really been rushed because of this pandemic? Well, I think this crisis has underscored just how important digitization is uh, for individuals to be able to transact, to, to get payments from their government, uh, for small businesses to be able to, to be in contact with their customers through, uh, through e-commerce and to, to do transactions in some form uh, other than, than cash. So that trend was already underway, but I think this has accelerated it. Um, and certainly in the United States, which had lagged behind uh, a number of other markets when it came to contactless payments, we've seen a dramatic increase in demand for contactless. One of the things that we've heard a lot about from the major banks in part is reserving for possible bad credit because uh, people are going to have a tougher time paying their credit cards off when they come due, given the fact they're losing their jobs as a practical matter. What are you seeing at MasterCard and what adjustments are you making for that? So, uh, (laughs) David, I like to say that uh, uh, Apple's not a fruit. Amazon's not a river, and MasterCard is not a credit card company. It's actually the banks who extend loans. <laughs> we're the infrastructure. We're the technology that makes the payments happen. And one thing that, that we at MasterCard have been committed to is is being a multi-rail company. So we want to help people pay any way they want to pay. Maybe that's on a credit card or a debit card or account to account um, or digitally. So we want to make sure we have now the capability. We're the only global multi-rail company that can help people pay in any in any way that they want to. And if credit's not appropriate at the moment, then they can rely on, on debit or account-to-account uh, payments. But uh, uh, we're certainly doing everything we can to help our, our customers and their customers get through this crisis. Okay, last question, Michael. I want to draw from your experience as a, the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, as well as your experience now at MasterCard. Do you have any concern that as people are looking around the world and saying maybe globalization went too far, that maybe some of the borders being put up in some places are not just for immigration, not just for trade, but could be actually for credit and for payment systems? Well, we do have a concern that uh, that that people will, uh, countries will sort of resort towards nationalism, nativism, protectionism. Um, you know, governments have absolutely legitimate uh, interests and concerns about, about privacy and wanting to make sure that they've got the best uh, possible financial infrastructure uh, in the country. But one thing that this crisis underscores, for example, is just how important that there it is that there be really robust 
systems, with cybersecurity protection, with anti-fraud protection, and that you're able to see trends in data across countries so that you can, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank or other institutions, take action to make sure you're addressing the, those who are most uh, those who are most vulnerable. And being having a global payment capability, uh, seeing having access to, uh, to to multiple countries allows that to happen. So uh, we're very committed to working with governments uh, through this crisis. Uh, we're helping a lot of them uh, both through our data analytics to understand the impacts of the COVID crisis and through our payment capability to help them uh, disperse funds to small businesses and, and to individuals. And we'll continue to work with them as we come out of this crisis to ensure that they've got strong and secure uh, payment systems uh, uh, in each country. That was Michael Froman, Vice Chairman of MasterCard. Coming up on Wall Street Week, how technology is helping us remake our lives in the time of the coronavirus and how it can do a better job. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, IBM also announced new ways of using technology to support the enormous weight that we are putting on IT in this age of social distancing. I talked with the new CEO of IBM, Arvind Krishna, about the way it is responding to the needs of its customers, needs that none of us could have anticipated. When we look at the pandemic and what's unfolding upon us, First, let's just have a lot of sympathy for those who are impacted by it. But then, as you've all shifted to remote work, the need for digital technologies, the need for cloud, the need for AI has accelerated. As you pointed out, our audience went from 30,000 to 87,000. I do believe that's a reflection of the acceleration that our clients are seeing in adopting these technologies. If we look at cloud, it's a great way to be able to reach your clients virtually to be able to get all your employees connected back to the enterprise in a remote and virtual way. If you look at AI, it's about the only way to get the extreme automation to be able to handle the workloads that are going to be thrust upon us. And that's why we're making so many announcements at this conference in both those realms, as well as the client interest that we can see with the, with the people who are attending these sessions remotely. So let's talk about those clients, because you talk to them every day. We've all become so dependent on this technology. What are the things you're hearing most from your clients about what they need, what changes they need, what improvements they need, and what are you trying to do to address those? Uh, so, so a couple, uh, David, just to make a point, uh, this thing. 
So I'll be talking to the chief digital officer for Anthem during the conference. And what they're talking about is how do they connect all their, uh, their clients, the 40 million people who get health care, and how can they connect with them uh, digitally and remotely? And how can they infuse those experiences with AI? And how can they build them on a hybrid cloud platform so they can run them at scale and dial them up and down depending upon the need? So that's a great example of a client, but it's the same story we hear from everywhere, whether from people in the airline industry, uh, insurance, banking, telecom. It's about bringing hybrid cloud technologies so they can deploy the workload wherever it's, uh, it's fit for purpose, and then they can use AI to not only do extreme automation, which helps take cost out, but to actually make uh, the experience even richer for all their end clients. And that's why we begin to see the infusion of both those technologies going forward. A quick example, one of the products we'll announce here is in the category we call AI for IT. And the product is called Watson AI Ops. Outages in IT cost the industry about $265 billion. But that's, if we react after the fact, that cost is still there. If we can begin to predict what may go wrong and be able to put it right in the workflow, right in all the collaboration tools, and fix it even before it happens, that brings huge power, unlocking the potential of AI for our clients. And that is something we really, really are excited about, in addition to the other hybrid cloud technologies we're also bringing out at this conference. So, so Arvind, I must say, those of us who are working from home and experience some of the glitches that happen are eager to have those corrected. When will that product be available? Will it really redeem some of the situations that we have where our system goes down? There's some problem, we have to reboot it, things like that. Uh, so that product actually is, is coming out now. We're announcing it at the conference in May, and people can start purchasing it now for deployment in this quarter, meaning before, before the month of June. So that is a great, great power. But to talk a little bit more on AI, if you look at AI and its impact on COVID, something we're all unfortunately suffering from right now, when I look at medical research in India, I look at government services in Poland, I look at hospitals in the United States, and these examples go across dozens of countries, we can all begin to use intelligent AI assistance to really take away and triage out a lot of information that people are looking for. So in a hospital case, uh, parents who are anxious about their children can interact with the AI assistant and be, and that way you can take a thousand odd calls and take them out of the medical professional's hands, allowing the medical professionals to focus on the much more serious cases where the AI reacts with, hey, this is serious enough that you should actually have a person now interact. I think these are really useful examples to show how AI can go, not just in IT, as you pointed out, David, where we all would like all of our infrastructure to stay up all the time, and we do believe the tools in, in the next month are going to help there, but also in terms of helping our citizens and governments and medical professionals be able to help uh, everyone deal with COVID-19. So Arvind, you make a very important point there, mentioning various countries where this could be applied. Uh, the situation has been global when it comes to internet and digital. At the same time, even before the pandemic, there were some countries that are trying to draw some borders when it came to data, uh, when it came to some of the internet's issues. Are you concerned, do you see any indications that the pandemic problems that we're seeing may actually increase the resistance to flows of data and information across borders? Look, David, um, I'll, I'll sort of begin with my perspective. Um, of course, the economies are always going to, and nations are always going to try to advantage themselves. But when we step back, I think both global trade 
and the free flow of data have shown that the entire economy, the global economy gets better and everyone benefits. I think it's a false dilemma when people think about a win-lose. It's not a sports game where it's a win-lose. It's a win-win if you can increase the size of the pie for everyone. That was Arvind Krishna, CEO of IBM. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We knew it was coming, and yet it shocked us nonetheless. 20.5 million Americans losing their jobs in just one month. And every one of those jobs represents a family that has been appended. So it's hardly any surprise that President Trump has said that we must get the economy going again, no matter what. And he recognizes there are certain risks involved in doing that, even if it means certain health and certain loss of life, potentially. It really seems an unthinkable choice, really, but let's be honest with ourselves. We know that sooner or later we have to get the economy going again. We also know that it's going to entail some risk. The question is how much risk and how best can we manage that risk? And so we begin with what we're told is a painful choice between tens of millions of people out of work on the one hand, and on the other hand, those whose life could hang in the balance. And to help us address that question, we welcome now Wall Street Week special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. He was, of course, Tre Secretary of Treasury. Larry, thanks so much for being back with us. We've talked about this. Obviously, we want to be cautious and really start restarting the economy again. At the same time, when you see that many people out of work, doesn't it mean we have to get going? It conveys that we've got a need to do something. We've got to make sure those people are able to continue to live, which is why very, very strong unemployment insurance that's fortified for this moment is going to be absolutely uh essential and why the Congress is going to have to move to extend what's been put in place so that it's securely there for people that's as long as necessary. It says that we, we need to move with all deliberate speed, but if we do it in a way that starts the pandemic up again, then in the end, the people aren't going to come back uh, to uh, their jobs because they're going to be afraid uh, to go to work and the people they serve in stores or restaurants are going to be afraid to go out of their houses. So we've really got to make a priority um, out of uh, doing uh, what's necessary to enable us to move forward. And that goes back to masking. It goes back to testing and it goes back to contact tracing. And we're not spending 10% uh, as much on those things as we are on uh, the relief efforts. And that's something that we're going to need uh, to fix if we want to be able to have a viable economic recovery. Hope, David, is, is not a strategy. And simply letting us open up in the hope that more people will uh, – be hired is probably a prescription for getting a second wallop uh, from uh, this virus. And that's not going to serve either economic objectives uh, or uh, moral objectives. But yes, we absolutely can't just accept this. It's no argument for fatalism, but it's an argument for the right kind of economic strategy. But the first plank in that uh, right economic strategy 
is an aggressive health strategy. And unfortunately, we're still not seeing that. So we heard from Larry Kudlow this week, and he said that as a practical matter, we will never have to shut it all down again because we've built up so much infrastructure since the epidemics first came here that we now have the wherewithal that even though there will be flare-ups, the president admits to that, we'll be able to contain it. Does that sound right? Sounds like nonsense. It sounds like something he wishes is true. I mean, talk about contagion. The president's penchant for confusing what is with what he wants to with what he would like to be true seems to be contagious to the people who work for him uh, in uh, the White House. Unfortunately, we don't even at this late date, we can track a presidential election every day. Pepsi can track the sale of Fritos every single day. The government of the United States of America cannot track every single month or every single week the incidence of a pandemic. We don't have the data. We've got data on how many people have been tested positive, but since we don't have tests for most people, that data is telling us as much about how many tests there are as how many people have the disease. It is incredible that in this age, of data science, of social media, of information technology, of artificial intelligence, that the most rudimentary kind of tracking information is lacking and that we are being thrown back on what was the 14th century solution to the plague. Everybody go to the country and stay and stay in their own houses and not meet anybody they don't live with. Um, it is extraordinary to me, and I don't know what Cudlow's. I don't know what Cudlow's talking about. Show me some infrastructure that the administration has developed. They've turfed the problem to governors who have lacked the necessary uh, resources, and some are doing uh, better uh, right. than others. But the stunning right. thing is the plateauing right. of uh, of this. Uh, virus. And so, yes, it's true. We're not going to ever, I anticipate, have another month when we lose another 20 million jobs. But if we want the better half of those 20 million jobs to be coming back, we need to get on our horse and do something. So, so Larry, everything you say raises the natural question, why? Uh, we have a lot of people in the private sector, the public sector, e- even charities such as the Gates Foundation who are devoted to this. Why aren't we fixing those problems? There's an obvious answer and there's a deep answer. The obvious answer is custody incompetence. And we've just got vast amounts of sort of inconceivable levels of incompetence at the federal level. And that needs to be said before anything complex uh, is said. But there is a complex problem. Take the area of tests, David. If you thought about, if you had a potential test that you thought was really good, that was cheap, that used saliva, that could be mass produced, and you were thinking about producing it, you would need to know one of two things. You would either need to know that your test was gonna be selected and you had a high confidence that you'd be able to go into vast production with it, and then you'd be willing to do it. But if you thought 
that there are a lot of people trying and you might win the lottery, but more likely than not, you wouldn't. You'd need to know either that you were going to be insured for your costs if you didn't win the lottery, or you'd need to know that if you did win the lottery, you were going to win some kind of massive surprise. But in the decentralized system with 50 states that we have now, people thinking about developing those tests know that they won't get reimbursed for their costs if their thing isn't selected, and that if their thing is selected, they won't be allowed to make massive profits because it'd be immoral to profit on a huge scale in the midst of a national emergency. And so the incentive to drive something uh, to completion just isn't uh, there in the way we're managing this. We need an aggressive program that encourages every development and reimburses people for their, uh, for their costs. And when they don't, uh, and provision for providing a big reward for people who develop ultimately successful vaccines. If we had that, we would be doing much better. But look, to have any kind of environment for doing anything succeed, you need signals that have some character of constancy, some predictability, and no company could effectively manage a supply chain if its CEO was announcing different things on odd number days and on even number days. And that's the situation that the federal government has us in right now. Yeah, federal pro procurement program. It's a big goal. I, I'm not sure that we're headed in that direction necessarily right now, Larry. And I, I suspect mean, look, it would take an awful long time to get it up and running as a practical matter. But well, it is an idea. And certainly we don't seem to be getting where we need to go right now. And we need to get back and running. And if we're going to save some of these jobs, we're losing so terribly many of them. Thank you so much to Larry Summers. He's our special Wall Street Week contributor. He is, of course, a university professor at Harvard, and he's former secretary of the Treasury. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. This is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.